a scream. Lynn Ellingson jolted awake in the blackness of the hours before dawn, her heart thumping, her head pounding, to the chilling sound of someone screaming. For a moment, she didn't know where she was. Then, as Lynn listened to the unfamiliar sound of someone screaming in the distance, she had blinding flashes as memory struck her like balls of fire, and she remembered exactly where she was. The farm. The pig farm. It was late, and Lynn laid there in complete darkness. As she came to, the darkness wrapped around Lynn like a funeral shroud. Something was wrong. Something was amiss. All the lights were out. It felt more like a tomb than a mobile home. She sensed danger all around her, an invisible, undefined threat. The sound of her own heartbeat was the only certainty that Lynn was still alive. Lynn had been living on the farm and doing odd jobs for the owner for a couple of months now. She was introduced to the owner through a mutual friend she had met at a halfway house. Lynn Ellingson was a young mother in her 20s, thin and frail, with a serious drug addiction to both crack cocaine and meth. She had a baby, a child she had been forced to give up because she was too addicted to drugs to care for them. Another scream. It was a woman. Maybe this was all a dream, a nightmare, she whispered to herself in the dark. It was all so surreal. On the verge of panic, she stumbled around in the moonlit shadows and went to her roommate's bedroom. The door was open, so she peeked in. It was empty. No one was there. There was, as always, trash everywhere. She saw clothes strewn around. Her roommate was a slob and lived like a hoarder. The farm was always a mess, but then her roommate and his brother took over. It became a pigsty in every sense of the word. Her roommate was weird, really weird. He ate ice cream for breakfast, reeked of rotting meat from his refusal to take showers, and sometimes consumed dog food out of the can with a spoon. He was withdrawn and didn't talk much. When he did speak, he would babble in a high-pitched, fast voice. He spoke in broken fragments, a type of pigeon. He didn't smoke or drink or do drugs. And despite his poor hygiene, he kept his teeth in great shape. While Lynn certainly didn't love living with this man, it was better than living on the streets. Anything was better than living on the horrid, rain-soaked streets of Vancouver's Skid Row, with all the misery, the cold, and the constant threat of being killed. Women had been going missing for decades from the downtown east side, and most sex workers suspected these women were the victims of a maniac. The police knew a serial killer was at large, and they did little to stop him. Lynn could tolerate his filth because her survival depended upon it. Her roommate had money and resources. He bought her booze, smokes, drugs, and groceries. He had even tried to help her with financial assistance from the government. Lynn and her roommate were friends, but their relationship was strictly platonic. She wasn't attracted to him. Balding and rodent-like, Lynn's roommate wasn't an attractive man, and he had to pay women to have sex with him. Suddenly, she remembered going with her roommate in his truck to pick up a sex worker from the downtown east side, the most dangerous and crime-ridden neighborhood in Vancouver, Canada. An absolute hellhole of homelessness, crime, misery, and murder. They had returned earlier that evening to the farm with the sex worker. The woman was beautiful, 
with long black hair and ivory skin. While the woman and Picton went in one room, Lynn went into another to get high. Lynn was startled by a light at the window. It was coming from the slaughterhouse. A shadowy figure could be seen moving around in the amber glow of the light. Lynn left the trailer and went to investigate, her heart pounding with every step. It was chilly outside, and Lynn shivered from the cold. Suddenly, and without warning, something inhuman growled at her from the darkness. She jumped. It was her roommate's vicious-looking guard dog. The beast growled at her from inside his cage as she passed by. Her roommate often joked about feeding anyone who trespassed on his property to that damned mutt. He also claimed the dog bites could infect you with HIV. Its feral eyes shined ghostly in the moonlight. As soon as Lynn got to the barn, she noticed the smell. In addition to the coppery stench of blood, the slaughterhouse smelled strongly of feces from human intestines being dismembered. Lynn crept towards the front door despite the foul odor and pushed it open. There was a light, a white, blinding light. And then she saw someone's legs dangling from the ceiling. The toes were painted with red nail polish. Beside the body sat the meat cutting table smeared with red and human remains. A clump of black hair glistening with blood lay on the table, which was lit by the blinding white light overhead. It was as if someone had been scalped. Lynn suddenly felt sick. Adjacent to the table was a bucket of blood and discarded entrails. Adipose. Human, fatty tissue. There stood a balding, ragged-looking pig farmer with a dirty beard and the macabre grin of a scary clown. He was completely naked, covered in blood and viscera. He held a butcher knife in one hand and a meat saw in the other. Both were stained with gore. It was Lynn's roommate, Robert Picton, the pig farmer killer. He was in the process of hanging something on a meat hook. It was the skinned body of Georgina Pappen. Georgina was a mother of seven children. She was the woman they had picked up earlier that night, and now she had become Robert Picton's latest victim. When she saw the horrific sight before her, Lynn tried to scream. Picton rushed over to her and violently grabbed her by her hair. He dragged her over to the table to make her look at what he had done. She wanted to scream. She wanted to flee. There was no escape. Picton sliced off a piece of flesh from the body and showed it to her. It's okay, he said. She's just like a pig anyways. It's all right. It's going to be all right now, you see. He leaned in really close to Lynn. She froze. Her heart was hammering in her chest. You say a word to anybody, do anything, you gonna be right here beside her, Picton said as he pointed to all that was now left of Georgina Pappen. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Michael. And I'm your other host, Stephanie. And welcome to the Spookies podcast. So, Steph, have you ever been to Vancouver? I have not. I actually have. Did you see any liver-eating mutants, any fluke men, <laughs> any serial killers with poor hygiene? Uh, uh, no. Any relatives? Uh, no, no, none of, <laughs> nothing like oh, that. All those things go together, right? My relatives? Yeah, and serial killers, <laughs> poor hygiene. <laughs> No, no, none of that goes together. Uh, no, I was only there for a day. I was with a uh, jazz choir in college. That's so dorky. 
What? No, it was the coolest. We were the coolest. Our, we were really good. <laughs> the choir was the coolest. Because we were really, really good. And my fellow music nerds will understand when you have a really good group of musicians, it's awesome. But I can tell you that Vancouver is very beautiful. It was super foggy and steamy. Turns out Canada is just as fucked up as America. They just do it with a smile on their face and a song in their hearts. <laughs> song in their hearts. <laughs> now, for the record, I love Canada. The city of Vancouver holds a special place in my heart. I have always wanted to visit. It is where my favorite TV show, The X-Files, was filmed. So me visiting Vancouver would be like a Jew visiting the Holy Land. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I'm not even joking. You know, I didn't even know X-Files was filmed in Vancouver. I don't think like it was at the top of my mind when I was there. No, Other... You're just out of the loop when it comes to that show. No, well, no. You're, you're not cool enough to understand. No, I just, the internet was not a thing like it was, or like it is now. Unfortunately, like most cities, Vancouver, British Columbia has a dark underbelly. It turns out Canada, like America, is plagued with issues surrounding racism, class, and misogyny. I think what gets lost in the uh, discourse surrounding this case is the fact this is really the story of a murderer allowed to prey on the homeless. Because mm -hmm. when they talk about this case, they always say, oh, it's a sex worker killer, you know, or he's the hillbilly guy who kills sex workers. Yes, but it's also homeless people. Mm -hmm. And as an aside, I will never use the term unhoused or other PC terms for the homeless. It doesn't help them. It actually minimizes and sanitizes the devastating effects of being homeless. Whoever came up with that woke shit is obviously rich. Yeah. A rich wine mom from the suburbs. <laughs> I mean, it reeks of liberalism. Who is only mildly bothered about the Supreme Court decisions this week? <laughs> well, yeah, it doesn't affect her. She can always, she'll be fine. The police of any given city in the world has a moral and a legal obligation to keep their citizens safe. But what happens when law enforcement allows certain crimes, such as the state-sanctioned murder of people they deem undesirable as a means of social control? Ethnic cleansing in the inner cities, crack cocaine in the 80s, terrorizing the homeless, and allowing violent psychopaths to prey on sex workers. Guys, where does it end? When asked by reporters why the sex workers and the mentally ill were being confined to the horror show that was the downtown east side, Gordon Campbell, who was Vancouver's mayor in the 1980s, made his strategy clear. While he considered it rather unfortunate that women were being attacked and killed, the citizens of his city wanted nothing to do with these people. We do not want hookers around our high schools or our elementary schools, he said. We do not want them around our parks, our residential areas, around the good people of our city, he said. Stephanie, what are good people? Women that don't have abortions, people that listen to Imagine Dragons, <laughs> or eat at Applebee's and live real nice lives. Like, what is a, what are these good people, these mystical figures? Yeah, because apparently if you're forced into prostitution, you're not a person and you don't have a family. Or if you're homeless. Or if you're homeless. Yeah. yeah. This uh, dickhead mayor is terrified that the homeless and the sex workers' drug use will scare off the tourists. And I'm wondering... Does this ass clown realize that tourists bring drugs? <laughs> Drug tourism is a thing. These podcasts I listen to, they're always talking about how they're going to Bangkok or they're going to China or they're going wherever. And they're like, and I got to do heroin. I got to do crack. I got to do this. That's and, crazy. And these are very cosmopolitan people. No, no, no. We're not talking about any of our 
people we normally talk about in this podcast. These are podcasts I don't mention. I'm not going to say who they are, but they're always bragging about their vacations and they're using drugs. I would not do that for a number of reasons, aside from, you know, maybe dying. But the other reason would be, can you imagine being caught with that shit in one of those shitty countries and the jail? Well, in some of these countries, it's where it's legalized. That's the whole point. They go there. Oh, so it's kind of like going to uh, Colorado or California to smoke weed. All the Republican soccer moms are going to Bangkok to do heroin. What the fuck? It's like that old saying, (laughs) what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. That has a meaning behind it. Man, I get get marijuana because that's... It's like that's the, no more it's dangerous this idea than of like rep- alcohol. Repressed people, yeah, going to places to release their inner hedonist. Yeah, and and typically people who are traveling over to Thailand, not everybody, but a lot of these single men when they're going over to Thailand, you know what they're fucking doing. Well, that, but it's also women too. They're hiring prostitutes, and these women are not unlike what, like any other. There's also male prostitutes that a bunch of gangs of women have sex with too. So it's, it works both ways. That's so gross. Yeah. And then they do drugs. They do drugs. They do maybe shrooms. This mm-hmm. is the Amber Heard thing. But, you know, it's just like something she yeah. would do. Or, you know, these celebrities would do. But in rich people. There's a lot of child prostitution in Thailand. And, and a lot of it has to do with their shitty economy. Politicians are the last people to ever lecture anyone on morality. Oh, yeah. This is a fair thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> they are the scum of the earth. Uh-huh. And this dickhead mayor, this walking tumor was the main architect of the gentrification of Vancouver, which led to more displacement and more crime. The things he claims he's trying to prevent. Mm-hmm. Because that message is clear. Sex workers and the homeless aren't really people, are they? Not in the eyes of the mayor and not in the eyes of the Vancouver police. And not in the eyes of the American police and American politicians. Tonight's case is part two of our look into the dark and depraved story of Robert Willie Picton, the pig farmer killer. When we last left Bobby Willie, he had committed his first act of sexual violence against a child sex worker. Once he got there, his bloodlust for ending their lives knew no bounds, and his methods were among the most cruel and appalling in the annals of true crime. Most of his victims were either living on the streets or forced to live in shelters run by those that exploited and stole from them. Robert Picton might look like a bum. He might smell like pig feces. But in reality, he was a very wealthy man wearing the skin of a trash ball hillbilly. One of the strangest monsters we have ever covered on this podcast. Mm-hmm. And how did this filthy and disgusting man get away with killing dozens of women for years? After the break, we're going to talk about the missing women of Vancouver's downtown east side and how the Vancouver Police Department allowed a monster to murder with impunity for decades. Throughout the 1980s and 90s, Robert Picton slaughtered women with absolute impunity. He would later claim that he brought his victims, who were almost entirely sex workers and homeless women, to the farm in Port Coquitlam, Canada, where he handcuffed, raped, tortured, stabbed, and killed them by strangulation. Some victims he even killed with syringes filled with antifreeze. And I don't know why, but that bothers me than a lot of the other things. There's it, just something really horrifying about that. Because you know that that's a slow, painful death. And it's also like an improvised mm-hmm. way of killing somebody. It's not like a true poison. It's, it's a really fucked up way to kill somebody. <laughs> it's the Bobby Willie way. Y- yeah. 
before cutting them up into pieces with a meat saw or running them through a wood chipper and feeding their remains to his pigs. That's Fargo. What? Sometimes he would bury what was left of them on the farm or store them in a freezer. Oh, God. The farm, it turns out, was the perfect place for body disposal. And if you think about it, it is. The parts the pigs wouldn't eat, such as hair or teeth, were disposed of at a rendering plant downtown. Yeah, like we talked about last time. Mm -hmm. Not far from where he was preying on the homeless and the forgotten. In the 1980s, women from Vancouver's poorest neighborhood suddenly began vanishing without a trace. Missing posters started appearing in and around the downtown east side, Vancouver's very own Skid Row. A predator is loose, and the low track was his hunting grounds. Sex workers are afraid to go out at night. It is a dangerous time to be a woman, especially a woman of color, living on the streets of Vancouver, Canada. The community suspected a serial killer was responsible for these missing women, yet the police ignored them and refused to speak with the family members of the missing. Without evidence pointing to murder, the disappearances were officially dismissed by the Vancouver PD as nothing more than relocations. Area sex workers attempted to protect themselves by walking in groups, but the number of disappearances steadily continued to grow. They came to be known by the denizens of the downtown east side as the disappeared ones. Something very strange is happening. Something was very wrong. Rumors began to spread among the sex workers, many of whom were indigenous women, that there was a conspiracy afoot. It is safe to say that the ineptitude and malicious negligence of the Vancouver PD played a huge role in adding to Robert Picton's body count. Were the police simply being callous, or was it something far more deliberate and insidious? Is it possible that the Vancouver police and the politicians were allowing a killer to roam freely because in their minds he was cleaning up the streets? Were they somehow complicit in the disappearances and the murders? From the early 80s to the turn of the millennium, Picton, an intellectually disabled pig farmer, slow and often quite literally covered in pig fecal matter, was able to continue killing Vancouver sex workers for decades due to the lack of concern for the missing and the homeless by the Vancouver police and the city's overlords. The downtown east side is an urban hellscape, where all the city's unwanted and forgotten were being corralled, where women and children are routinely victimized daily. Most of the downtown east side female addicts support their habits via prostitution, trolling the streets night and day, haunted creatures rendered skeletal by starvation and addiction. On these corners, sexual predators proliferate. Each day, sex workers are beaten, raped, robbed, tied up, held down, doused, and burned. Some men slam car doors on their legs. One tried to cram a ball down a prostitute's throat. Another, as we talked about last time, took women to hotels and forced them to drink until they poisoned themselves to death. How we treat the homeless and the mentally ill is always a good indicator of the morality of a society. With so many people but a few paychecks away from homelessness, it seems logical that most would have more, not less empathy towards the homeless. However, it seems quite the opposite. According to Jungian psychology, as humans, we have a primal, unconscious fear of becoming homeless ourselves. By sticking to the belief that only people who are inherently bad can find themselves living on the streets, we insulate ourselves from any fear of it. In the 80s and 90s, prostitution was illegal in Canada. 
when you criminalize someone, you dehumanize them. Mm -hmm. And once someone is dehumanized by society at large, we tend to vilify them. Even the women and children who are either homeless or drug addicts or both. The Russian novelist Dostoevsky once said that a society should be judged not by how it treats its outstanding citizens, but by how it treats its criminals. I agree. The Vancouver PD and the city officials pushed the sex workers and the homeless out of safer residential and tourist areas in the 1970s and 80s and kept them corralled in the far more dangerous streets of the downtown east side. That eventually meant sex workers were in isolated areas out of sight of both police and local residents making it easier for predators like Robert Picton, Bobby Willie, to target the women and the homeless with impunity. They let a wolf into the sheep's pen they created. The question is, was that intentional, or was that just a result of them being corralled there? This coincided with thousands of psychiatric patients who were released from the nearby asylums after being deinstitutionalized by the Canadian government in the 1970s. See, I thought that only happened in America. It was a movement. God. There was this movement, I think in the UK as well. That's terrible. These people were kicked out onto the streets and left to fend for themselves. The downtown east side was the only place in the entire city they could afford to live or felt welcome. Once cocaine became as widely available as heroin, more people became addicts, and the crime rate in the neighborhood just spiraled out of control. Meanwhile, more and more women are going missing from the downtown east side. As we mentioned in part one, Rebecca Gounod is believed by many to be Robert Picton's first victim, although no one can say for certain. Rebecca vanished without a trace on a hot summer day in 1983. Rebecca was aboriginal. Her whereabouts to this day are unknown. She is presumed dead. Laura Ma, a 42-year-old indigenous woman, disappeared on August 11, 1985. That same year, another woman, Cheryl Donahue, aged 39, Donahue, a white woman, was very attractive, with long blonde hair, blue eyes, and a smile that was said to light up a room. She went missing on May 30th, 1985. What's so tragic about both Ma and Donahue is that so little is known about them. They vanished from this world without leaving any sense of who they really were, whom they loved, and who loved them. Mm -hmm. Robert Picton didn't just kill them, he erased them from our very existence in many ways. Eight months later... On March 13th, 1986, Elaine Allenbach, aged 21, vanished. Allenbach, a vivacious young woman with long auburn hair, kept a diary of her life on the streets. Most of her friends thought she was on her way to Seattle when she went missing. She never made it. She was never seen or heard from again. About two years after Elaine Allenbach disappeared, so did a young girl named Teresa Ann Williams, who was just 15 years old at the time, but the mother of two children. Teresa had run away from home with her best friend when they were both only 13. She lived on the crime-ridden streets of the downtown east side, struggling to survive. She was last seen alive on July 21, 1988. And later that year, the police found her leg bone not far from the rendering plant. Sadly, they had no way to identify it belonged to Therese until many years later, when DNA technology had improved. In 1989, 34-year-old Elaine Dunbaugh, who had moved to Vancouver from Regina, disappeared. She became homeless and was forced into sex trade work to survive on the downtown east side. She came from a large family and left behind a mother, 
two sisters and a brother, cousins, aunts, and uncles, and grandparents, all of whom worried about her and missed her. She was dearly loved, said one relative, dearly loved. It was terrible for her family. The grief, even after all these years, it still cuts deep, and they don't want to talk about her. Then there was Ingrid Sowett, who was 30 years old and had been diagnosed with schizophrenia. She was blonde, petite, and last seen in August 1989. She just disappeared, her mother Mary would later say. She said, see you later, and went to see her boyfriend and never came back. Ingrid was neither an addict or a sex worker. A psychic Mary Sowett consulted out of sheer desperation claimed Ingrid had run away to British Columbia's Sunshine Coast. After a massive search, no trace of Ingrid Sowett has ever been found. By 1989, outrage was growing among those who lived on the downtown east side. The families of the victims were being ignored. The Vancouver police would often hang up on them when they called to report their loved ones missing. And when they did answer, their response would often be some variation of, well, we don't have the time to look for hookers. Your daughter's a drug addict. What do you expect for us to do? And furthermore, she can go missing if she wants. We can't stop her. There's no evidence of foul play. So let's think about what Michael is saying for a moment. The police refused to file the reports. The families wanted them to look for them missing, yet time and again, they seemed openly hostile to the very idea of looking for the sex workers and homeless that disappeared. The police flat out refused to acknowledge that a monster was loose on the streets of Vancouver. They insisted, despite all evidence to the contrary, that any discussion of a serial killer in the downtown east side was a waste of time. Can you imagine your daughter, sister, friend goes missing? You are terrified something bad has happened to them. Then you ask the police to help, to help find them, and they hang up on you. It's both appalling and highly suspicious. When we return, we are going back to the Picton farm. While the police continue to ignore women and the homeless going missing, workers on the farm are growing suspicious of Bobby Willie's strange behavior. And we will talk about the Picton Brothers' establishment, the Piggy Palace Good Time Society, which is actually as disgusting as it sounds. Nothing good can come from a place called the Piggy Palace Good Time Society. I don't think so. Nope. Welcome back to the Rob Zombie film that is The Pig Farmer Killer. Okay, Stephanie, I have a quick question for you. Shoot. If a cop eats bacon, is that considered a form of cannibalism? (laughs) Because the cops in this case are definitely pigs. Is it? What do you think? I say yes. Okay. We've lost the Blue Lives Matter crowd. They weren't here. They're not subscribing to our Patreon now. (laughs) It's okay. So, guys, it is now the early 90s. The Uvalde police, I mean, the Vancouver police (laughs) of Keystone cops are trying to find their asses with both hands, and they can't do it. The Vancouver Police Department was rightfully roasted in the Canadian press for its reluctance to adopt newly emerging methods of investigation, such as psychological profiling Hmm. and geographic profiling. You know, the basics. (laughs) Now, to me, this sounds like stonewalling. This whole case stinks. It reeks of a cover-up. They have no excuse. 
they have no interest in stopping the killer. It's like Canada suddenly decides they are America and rejects science. We don't believe in profiling. <laughs> we don't believe in science. <laughs> Bobby Willie keeps on a killing. Women continue to disappear. But not the good people, you know. <laughs> Mr. Picton is just killing them hookers and them homeless folk, eh? <laughs> good people do not have sex. They have kids because Canadian geese drop off the babies on their doorsteps. <laughs> Good people watch that Ted Lasso show. <laughs> they take their kids to them hockey games. They are trouble without missing hookers and serial killers. No, sir. <laughs> they eat their back bacon with that maple syrup. You betcha. <laughs> it, it is harder to speak Canadian than you guys realize. <laughs> now, every Canadian who listens to this episode is going to be like, well, yeah, you guys are mocking us, but at least we never elected a shit stain like Donald Trump is our leader. And that's entirely a fair point. <laughs> the Picton brothers weren't particularly kind to the day laborers they hired. Bobby Willie refused to pay them. He liked to scare people by saying he could get rid of them at any time. Sounds just like his mother. Yeah. Later, he tried to make friends with them again. Does that make any sense whatsoever? No. <laughs> but nothing about this case does. None. No. Safe to say Bobby Willie had the social skills of someone with an acute personality disorder. Willie often tried to make amends for his threats and strange behavior by offering weird food. Quote, One day he told me he had a ham for me, and I should pick it up after my shift. Remembers a man who was just a teenager at the time? Another kid told me not to take it. But at the end of my shift, I said, What about the ham you promised me? And Willie returned with a mass of material. It wasn't brains, but I don't know what it was. It was all stringy and not ham. And it wasn't frozen. Well, it's good to know that it wasn't brains. <laughs> brains are not stringy. But this still sounds utterly disgusting. Uh, it sounds I, like awful. I suppose it could be spam or Taco Bell meat. <laughs> Do we know if Bobby Willie ever sold meat to Taco Bell? Have we all been eating something other than rodent this entire time? <laughs> Willie once gave a woman a slab of meat that contained an abscess. Another woman claimed she got hepatitis C from eating meat he gave her. Gee, what could be in the meat that contained hepatitis C? The hookers. <laughs> you know Willie is the type to dig up some of the dead animals he buried on the farm and offer the rotting carcasses as a snack. Gross. You just know he is. <laughs> as time went on, the workers on the Picton farm started to become more and more suspicious. They notice that the women who Bobby Willie brings to the farm never leave. They just mysteriously disappeared. A woman by the name of Lisa Yelds, one of Robert Picton's few friends, noticed women's clothing, purses, and identification when she tried to clean his filthy trailer. While Lisa was troubled by this unsettling discovery, she was a fiercely loyal person, and Willie was very generous to her, showering her with money and gifts so she didn't mention it to anyone until much later. She thought he might be some kind of hillbilly drag queen, a theory that would later be thoroughly debunked, let's just say. I just love that theory. It's wonderful. <laughs> she really did think the, according to that the he was a cross-dresser. Well, the signs are there. But there's other IDs yeah. of women. But she just shut that out of her mind because mm -hmm. he bought her a car. <laughs> <laughs> Lisa would take Bobby Willie to children's magic shows. He liked magic. Okay. 
Every trick was amazing to him, and he clapped wildly like a fucking seal. <laughs> he told her he didn't understand how the magicians could cut people in half, you know. And they could still be alive? Yeah, how were they still alive? It made no damn sense to Bobby Willie. He thought the magicians were actually wizards. No. Are they actually wizards, you know? Yeah, so this is the criminal mastermind who consistently eluded the Canadian authorities. Well, maybe they're dumber than he is. Mm. Willie started using his brother Dave's backhoes and bulldozers to dig massive holes around the property, especially at the northern and western edges of the farm. Some of the holes were 30 or 40 feet deep. Willie would be up late at night. He would dump in fleshy bits, bones, and meat until the gaping holes were nearly full and then bulldozed dirt to fill it up. Late one night, beneath the full moon in the dead of winter, one of the workers on the farm caught Willie bearing something with a shovel behind the barn. Got a big old pig here, he told her, hustling to spread more dirt over the hole. He seemed nervous. The woman thought the whole thing was odd and frightening. Stephanie and I uh, watched a video by this YouTuber called Scott on Tape, and I, I love his channel. He goes to like spooky places such as cemeteries where Hollywood movie stars are buried or notorious murders have been committed. He's a storyteller. He's like a videographer. Mm -hmm. And he follows me on Twitter, so I'm talking about it. Hi, hi Scott. Uh, He traveled to Canada to give a tour of the Picton Farm and the town of Port Coquitlam. And I got to say, I I fucking hate that name. I just... (laughs) The Picton Farm was located in the middle of Port Coquitlam, an affluent suburb of Vancouver. And I don't know about you, Stephanie, but that place gave me the creeps. Yeah. I just got bad vibes looking at the footage. And I know it's YouTube and it's, you know, footage. And it's not, we're not there, but it was just emanating evil through the, the television. My giant OLED, by the way. <laughs> I don't know if it's emanating evil, but it's not emanating serenity or peacefulness or safety. It's off. The land felt cursed. And not just because it was near the farm where the murders occurred. The whole neighborhood felt cursed to me. The people felt hostile, you know. And I know you think it's because he was there and they didn't like him filming. But it was more than that to me. So it reminds me of the X-Files episode, Arcadia. Oh, she's using an X-Files reference. Where something is rotten underneath the surface. Yeah, well, it doesn't make sense because it's this very uh, white bread, waspy suburb. And in the middle of it is a fucking farm. We talked about this last time, how this doesn't make any fucking sense. And when he shows it, when Scott shows this place, it is odd because it's an eyesore in the middle of this really beautiful neighborhood. derelict farm equipment still there. And, And chain link fences and just junk and mounds of dirt. It's ugly. And rather than build something that would commemorate the women who lost their lives there and try to reconsecrate the ground, if you will, and, and give it new life and energy, it's just left there. And it, and it is a stain. And now they've turned it into like a dog walk area. They walk, there's, a, there's a sidewalk that literally bisects part of the farm. And it's creepy. I, I wouldn't want to walk my animal. I wouldn't want to take a walk through the murder the murder lands. They're, <laughs> they're just glad there's no hookers there. <laughs> you know, it kind of reminds me of one of those neighborhoods where, you know, 
one of one of the husbands is beating the shit out of his wife and kids and a another is like molesting and raping his daughters it's got that fucking vibe to it well we talked about in part one in the opening for part one how wendy escapes and she bangs on the doors at night asking for help and nobody answers and you know they're home yeah well i think the good people of port coquitlam Mm -hmm. do have a connection uh, that goes deeper and we're going to get to that in a minute but so what is the piggy palace don't you just love that name it sounds like a place where fat people dressed as clowns fuck kids and eat them. <laughs> that's, that's what it conjures up in my sick mind. So, Stephanie, tell us about the Piggy Palace. We all want to know. It sounds like it could be called the Pedo Palace, and it would mean <laughs> well, the same it, thing. It kind of is. Right. So, in 1996, David and Robert claimed they wanted to share some of their wealth with the community. They filed an application for their very own nonprofit organization dubbed the Piggy Palace Good Time Society. In the application, they wrote that their plan was to organize, coordinate, manage, and operate special events, functions, dances, shows, and exhibitions on behalf of service organizations, right? Sports organizations and other worthy groups. Hmm. There is no evidence they ever donated any money to charity. Shocking, I tell you, shocking. <laughs> So it turns out that the Piggy Palace was a scam. A tax scam, you say? A Trump University-level scam. (laughs) The Piggy Palace, guys, it's basically Mar-a-Lago for bikers and dirtbags. For Robert Picton's beloved Hells Angels, because he just worshipped the ground they walked on. It was a party barn for a wretched hive of scum and villainy. (laughs) Bobby Willie loved cooking for the rowdy crowds. The more usable meat from Bobby Willie's kills was ground into things like sausage and ground pork and given away. Oh, my God. Him and his brother actually had a charity they ran that gave food to orphanages. You know, because kids need to eat meat. Fuck me, man. They serve human remains mixed with pork to guests of the Piggy Palace. Now, we'll say we don't know for certain if Dave knew there was human remains in it, but we do know that they were giving the meat away. I think Dave is... Very well entrenched in this. Dave is a scumbag and absolutely complicit. I'm just saying we don't know, like, definitively. Yeah, we don't know definitively. I'm sure if they were able to find evidence, they probably would have charged him. But... But we're going to speculate that he knew. I'm going to speculate that he knew all about this and was contributing. So, the Piggy Palace had bands come in and play all the time. And legend has it that the band Nickelback played a gig there once in the 90s. fits. You'd think... (laughs) You would think that the Hells Angels would at least have some standards. <laughs> I guess they couldn't afford Ted Nugent. <laughs> you know, and Ted Nugent, he looks like Bobby Willie's other brother from another mother. <laughs> Ted Nugent was born to play at that cannibal biker barn. Bikers, lowlifes, addicts, fans of anime, <laughs> sex workers from the downtown east side, even off-duty cops business owners and city council members attended these drugged up raves that devolved into secret sex orgies with many sex workers in attendance all for the good of the community right there was sex trafficking drugs and violent brawls it was very loud and very trashy it's disgusting but apparently the good people of port coquitlam were there to get some action and we wonder why the cops had such a hard time nailing down a killer hmm there were times when they were making up to 40 grand a night. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Ezra Miller, our favorite <laughs> human train wreck. Jeez. He would have loved this place. 
Him and Bobby Willie could go on all kind of wild adventures No, together. no, no. He would have gone in there, uh, punched some people, and called them all Nazis, and then ran out of there screaming about NFTs. Fun fact. Bobby Willie's pronouns could have been hee-haw. <laughs> now... There are conspiracy theories that allege the Vancouver police was involved in sex trafficking or they were selling sex workers to Picton for him to rape, murder, and butcher. There's also theories that both Picton brothers were a member of a local cult of bikers that practice human sacrifice and cannibalism. And I just love this theory because it is <laughs> fucking retarded and I love it. I mean, I have some other theories on this, but... I think the first half is more accurate. That the Vancouver police were complicit in sex trafficking. I think maybe some of the women that were ground up as food was a way to dispose of their bodies that maybe they had murdered. That is a theory. That is a theory. Uh, I think they were You know why? Because they're not good people. They're hookers. (laughs) They're hookers. (laughs) Them homeless people, too. They're hookers. <laughs> those, those mentally ill people that they just can keep in a hospital. They're hookers, too. <laughs> hookers. <Yeah. laughs> Jesus. They don't like bacon, so fuck them. <laughs> what is it? It's not backstrap. Uh, <laughs> what? They go back bacon. <laughs> back fat. <laughs> Christ. No, oh. it's uh I'm trying to think. Uh let me think. Let me think. Uh back bacon. Back bacon. Does that mean it comes from the back of the pig? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They literally uh, uh strip it off. I wonder whatever like happened a, to that giant slicer. hog that was on the farm. He the was, wild sow. He was actually good friends with that dog that they fed you and me to. She was. I kind of love the idea that there's two crazy <laughs> Vicious animals who have been severely abused, but they found love in each other. I I heard they were actually pretty happy. It's like a dodo story. They were pretty happy. (laughs) Whatever it is, having a fucking giant carnivorous nightmarish... (laughs) Giant sow. Yeah, is metal. That is pure metal. (laughs) With an HIV dog? Yeah. (laughs) HIV positive dog. That's metal too. It's also bullshit because it could never happen. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> All right, let's get on with it. People are tired of us laughing like lunatics. They think we've escaped from the asylum. Oh, it's so bad. <laughs> it's the hooker, Stephanie, the hooker. <laughs> Mayor Fucktard thinks they're hookers. <laughs> Mayor Fucktard is probably killing hookers. Mayor Fucktard probably fucks 10-year-olds. <laughs> oh, God, no. And then he's like, you can't get an abortion. You're 10. It's time to die. Yeah. <laughs> Off you go to yeah. the piggy palace. Good people don't have abortions. They have geese. <laughs> they have Canadian geese. They give birth to Canadian geese. <laughs> so the fact that the police and politicians were patrons of the piggy palace only lends credence to the conspiracy theory that the Vancouver police and local politicians know what Robert Pickton was doing and were involved in sex trafficking. If the cops and politicians were involved, if they were protecting the Pickton brothers, it is poetic justice considering what investigators would later uncover. The politicians and cops were horrified to learn they had unknowingly taken part in cannibalism. They were either eating pork mixed with human flesh or pigs that had been fed human remains. Taco Bell meat, either way. 
We are definitely not putting music to this episode. No. It's got to go out of all of it. It's got to. I got to take it all out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because this this is like this is zany at the end. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so remember Wendy Lynn Eistetter, the woman who got into the vicious knife fight with Picton in part one. In March 22, 1997, Picton had taken Wendy back to his farm. Eistetter told police that Picton handcuffed and attacked her on March 23rd, but that she escaped after disarming him and stabbing him with his own knife. In the ensuing struggle, both received life-threatening stab wounds. Wendy ran to the road and waved down a car whose occupants called an ambulance. She was taken to the local ER. While the woman was undergoing emergency surgery, Picton was receiving treatment for his injuries in the same hospital. An orderly at the hospital found a key in his pocket that fit the handcuffs on the woman's wrist. Picton was arrested and charged with attempted murder, assault with a weapon, and forcible confinement. Picton claimed she was a hitchhiker who had attacked him. He hired the best defense attorney in Vancouver, and his brother Dave and his biker buddies threatened and harassed Wendy. Fearing for her life, Wendy refused to testify. The charges were stayed and eventually dropped in 1998 because the woman, whose name was placed under the protection of a publication ban by the courts, was not considered a competent witness due to drug addiction. Right. Aided by the police, Robert Picton had gotten away with attempted murder. There was no end in sight to his killings. More women were going to die. And that concludes part two, because guess what? There's a third part. Because Robert Picton has been doing a bunch of shady shit on the farm and not paying people, and that's going to come back to bite him in the ass. Mm -hmm. Because you have to pay people if they're going to cover up your crimes for you. Yeah, but apparently that's what the mother did. And the other thing that's going to happen is DNA is catching up with Robert Picton. Because you could murder somebody in the 80s and they could vanish. Yeah. But now we're getting into the new millennium and DNA technology is progressing. Even though the Vancouver cops have been ignoring DNA technology for 10 years. Well, it's reaching a critical mass. Mm -hmm. And there's also uh, some criminal profilers are going to get involved. Because it's spreading but across the border. Robert Picton is not done yet, and he's going to start recruiting women to help him get more victims. And that's what we're going to talk about in part three, which is coming out this same week, as well as the psychology of Robert Picton. Do we think Robert Picton was evil? Do we think this is a conspiracy? All that stuff. That's in the next episode. Mm -hmm. And then after that, we're going to be doing a lost episode that we recorded back in February about Atlantis. And I am going to add some stuff to that because I found the file on that on our computer. It got lost. It just went away like Atlantis itself. (laughs) Where can they find us, Stephanie? You can find us at the Spookies podcast, right? No, it's the the (laughs) X-Cast. Sorry, sorry. My brain's a little fried after uh, laughing hysterically for 20 minutes. So (laughs) I'm going to do that again. You You can find me, Tony Black, at the (laughs) X-Cast. I'm a fat ass, whatever. You can find us at the Spookies Podcast at gmail.com, Twitter, and Facebook. Also on Instagram. You can find me, Steffi Hell yeah, on Twitter and Stephanie Hell yeah, on Instagram. You could find me at Agent Bigfoot on Twitter, where I just scream into the void and yell at people and tell them they're wrong about movies. It's not entertaining, but whatever. Same, same, same. Except I'm I'm yelling into the void about uh Roe being struck down because that is deeply personal to me. You and know- I'm pissed. Oh, them hookers, they can't have abortions now.
Thank you.